Hello, welcome back to Monster Frequency with me, Ben, here. Uh, it's Earth Day. We've got a very special episode today. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Michael Sweet from the University of Derby. Now, he's a very modest man, but he truly is a pioneer when it comes to the science uh, involved with coral reefs and the impacts of environmental change on coral reef ecosystems. Now, his uh, impacts have gone uh, way beyond, actually, his own kind of personal science, which some of which actually has looked into the microbiome uh, and, and kind of how this plays a role in disease and, and the kind of wellness of coral reefs. But it's also extended in a bit of a different way because he's also worked on the kind of science and culturing of coral reefs, which has really assisted uh, you know, in countless research streams through enabling bringing the coral reef as a study organism um, in labs all around the country. As a bit of context, it's typically uh, traditionally been very difficult to grow corals um, you know, for use uh, for research purposes. Um, so this is kind of one area that he's had a, a massive impact and continues to have a massive impact. So we got talking all about this because on Earth Day, of course, it's a good time to reflect on the natural environment, the Earth. And I thought this is a, a brilliant person to talk to, Prof. Michael Sweet, today, because we're probably all aware of the uh, quite shocking degradation and damage that we've seen occurring uh, to reefs worldwide. The Great Barrier Reef is, you know, probably the most famous example, and we've probably all seen those images of widespread coral bleaching and, and the kind of, you know, untold consequences of that for the wider environment. So we kind of get talking a bit about this. We get talking a bit about environmental science in general, a bit about ocean optimism, about things that we can do to potentially help a little bit, and I guess about the kind of problems in general that the environment is faced with. With. So I thought, you know, perfect uh, discussion for Earth Day. So this is all from actually a recent chat with I had uh, with uh, Mike. Now he agreed to return, uh, actually chat to me on the radio as well, and be a, a guest on Monster Frequency. So I am really, really, really very pleased to invite you uh, to uh, Monster Frequency, uh, Prof Sweet. Uh, I hope we can have you again on here uh, in the very near future. I'm sure we will. What about next Earth Day? Yeah? Back again? Hope so. Anyway, that's enough from me. I'm going to let uh, him introduce himself, say a few words about um, you know, his uh, position. And yeah, then we'll get chatting all about coral reef ecosystems and the, uh, the wider environment. So here he is. My name is Michael Sweet. Um, I'm a professor of molecular ecology at the University of Derby, and I'm head of the aquatic research facility uh, at the university. We work on a whole heap of uh, different uh, research projects, uh, from coral research to shark biology. Oh, Michael, well, thank you very much indeed. It's a very, very warm welcome to you. Uh, I can remember actually last time um, we were chatting, I actually caught you after a, a seminar that you delivered at the Environment and Sustainability Institute a few years ago. And I can remember just being absolutely blown away by kind of thinking about, because um, I was used to kind of thinking about, uh, you know, coral reefs and the kind of symbiosis. But I can remember my mind just being completely open to all these other interactions that were going on. And I was just really hoping you could kind of talk a little bit about, about that again, and kind of this idea of the microbiome. I think it's just absolutely fascinating that there is just so many interactions to think about, isn't there? Yeah, so I, I sort of uh, refer to, to uh, it as like the, the sort of surrogate to get, get students uh, excited in it. Um, most biology students and zoology students are, are really keen to, to see those larger mammals, uh, elephants and giraffes uh, roaming the plains. But if you actually look at, at any organism, uh, uh, you, you can, and under minute detail, under a microscope, uh, you see a whole world and a whole interaction of, of different species, different organisms, different groups, different kingdoms, uh, all interacting together, um, predators, preys, parasites, um, and it's a, a fascinating world um, to, to really explore from, from bacteria and viruses uh, to the, the, the bigger predators uh, like, like ciliates and other protozoans. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, th I think, as, as you say, that kind of that kind of thought in general about kind of exploring it is just absolutely fascinating. I think it it really goes for kind of anyone listening in as well. Can it just you know just from a layperson's perspective, they can think about you know perhaps as you say the kind of super charismatic kind of examples of species, and then actually delve a bit further. And I think the the microbiome because I don't know about um, yourself, but I, I think people are hearing more and more about that, aren't they? I think it's something that's being explored a lot in uh, more and more in recent years, and it's just really interesting to kind of think about that applied to areas which perhaps people haven't really thought about before, like, like corals, for example. 
Yeah, so the, the microbiomes are important for, for everybody. Yeah, we all have our own uh, microbiomes. And interestingly, the human microbiome, so things like the gut microbiome, which keeps you healthy, that's about 90% of what, what makes a human is not human cells. It's, <laughs> it's the other things. Um, so that, that little fact on its own, that little factoid, uh, shows how important these, these different species which make up the microbiome actually are. And it's important for health. It's also important for disease and so on and so forth. It keeps you fit. It makes you uh, fat, it, it makes you uh, run well, it makes you... Uh, everything and anything is, is, is governed by, the, by these microbes. Um, and if you take that from, from a human, obviously, uh, to keep us healthy, um, it's exactly the same application to, to a coral. It's what makes a coral tick. Uh, it needs these, these individual microbes, these core microbes, these stable microbes, um, to, to make them healthy. And any disruption of that is called it moves us on to from the microbiome to what's called the pathobiome so patho being disease and pathology um, and a, a shift in the microbiome has been documented uh, very well uh, to, to highlight that this is the sort of first stage and onset sometimes an early warning indication uh, that, that something's not right and a, and a disease is going to, to kick in um, and you'll and then you'll start seeing the physical signs of that so it's like an early warning system uh, and managers and, and, and scientists and conservationists uh, can, can tap into this early warning system uh, to give us an understanding to, to maybe try and do something about it so we, we actually explore the wonderful world of probiotics uh, now so this is the use of, of good bacteria uh, to try and fight off those, those nasty ones yeah thank you Michael. that's absolutely fantastic because i think in some of your recent um, published work that i've just been having a very kind of brief look and obviously a complete kind of a non-expert here talking about this but it's just fascinating to see that you've actually been working on kind of th- this whole kind of suite of loads and loads of different kind of culturable um bacteria and you've kind of been looking at the potential applications of those you know as, you, as you're saying in kind of um coral health and things like that and i think um that's just a fascinating thing because i'm sure people have kind of heard about this idea about um you know obviously the the algal symbionts in the coral and, and work that kind of looks at teasing teasing those apart and looking at different strains and there might be kind of you know thermally tolerant strains and things like that but i think it's really fascinating to think of actually the the, the microbiome and being able to kind of manipulate that as well it's just fascinating yeah, so the, 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 the culturing of bacteria in this instance, uh, but we're also looking at things like fungi as well. Um, the, the world of fungi is, is very unknown in, in, in marine biology, but uh, fascinating to me, and it's something we're, we're delving into quite, quite in depth at the moment. Um, but most people look at the bacteria at the moment. It's the sort of next thing, as you mentioned, about the symbiotic algae, and then, then bacteria is the next member of the microbiome, which, which is uh, more commonly looked at. Um, and, and culturing was... was uh, it's not a new thing. It's something which has been done for for, for many, many years. Um, and in fact, back in the, the sort of 1980s, it, it was uh, more extensively done. Uh, now we sort of uh, rely a little bit more on, on the super fancy techniques like next generation sequencing uh, uh, to, to explore the metagenome of these different organisms, uh, which gives us a, a really fascinating insight. But we, we lost, a, lost our way a little bit and we forgot to actually look back and, and understand what we could culture in, in, in various labs, uh, what those uh, organisms can then do, um, how can we manipulate them uh, to assist in, in things like restoration and, and conservation practices. So we've, we've sort of reverted back to these, these relatively simple techniques of, of culturing organisms. We advance them, we, we, we modify the, the culture media uh, to try and increase the, what's called the uncultural fraction. There's, this, uh, there's thought to be um, almost 90, 99% of, of bacteria thought to be uncultural because they, they're reliant on a, on a host or, or reliant on something that we just don't quite understand at the moment. We, we think we've actually knocked that back a little bit already, and, and in some cases we've got sort of some preliminary evidence to suggest that we can culture up to 80% of, of some uh, corals' uh, microbiome. Um, but that's, that's still work in progress. Um, but it, it gives us this whole suite of different things. And, and one of our probiotic studies, uh, so we've done proof of concepts of, of using probiotics, these good bacteria, with, the, with a simple application of, of six uh, good bacteria, to a coral. We've shown that the coral can actually uh, withstand higher temperatures. It can not only uh, weather uh, bleaching, but it can also fight off diseases. Um, and this is just the inoculation of six lonely little bacteria onto a coral, um, showing the, the great promise that these individual members play 
in this whole microbial soup, uh, where, which is uh, the corals faces and, and is exposed to on, on a daily basis. Oh, it's just, it just sounds awesome. I mean, I, I, I'm sure this is kind of a bit of a naive kind of comparison, but as you're kind of talking about the, you know, those kind of um, previously perhaps thought of as unculturable uh, microbes and kind of being able to explore those further, it reminds me straight away, actually, of the kind of, um, you know, we're always thinking about undiscovered species in the rainforest and thinking about, you know, potentially beneficial products and things that we can actually, you know, extract almost from, from life in that way. It kind of made me think about that, like almost likening it to as rainforest of kind of undiscovered discovered opportunity i think it's yeah really fascinating well 100 and in fact we've actually uh we we will work on this aspect as well to a degree so it is actually referred to in in the trade let's say uh as blue gold um so this this opportunity for for biotechnology and bio innovation uh to come from uh, just understanding and exploring uh microbes uh so especially associated with symbiosis and especially associated with corals and sponges and things like that it offers up a whole new world of, of different species novel antimicrobial uh, uh aspects uh which can be harnessed uh for for, for the greater good yeah, that's, that's absolutely awesome, because I, I know you got the kind of innovation angle there was actually something that I, I can remember very fondly, actually, last time I was chatting uh, chatting with, with uh, my colleague Sam for, for the radio last time you were kindly to agree to appear on, on the show with us. And I can remember you were talking a bit about the kind of um, that, that, that textbook that you'd, that you'd written, Introduction to Molecular Ecology, and you kind of tried to kind of define this kind of area. And, and actually, there was a lot of kind of aspects of that that really sounded like pretty sci-fi to be honest i mean there's a lot of innovation to be had i think in this kind of crossover area isn't there i mean you were talking about things like um you know edna and kind of the, the kind of scanning capabilities of that that you can imagine you know coming in, in the near future and, and de-extinction all these kind of terms that just sound like they're fresh out of a sci-fi film but i just think it's amazing to think that actually that those kind of things really aren't too far out that the world of actual real science are they it's amazing yeah, well, there's some some fascinating like like memes and things like that which I use in in, in my teaching, uh, where where to the point we can even uh, technically uh, recreate things like Jurassic Park. So science says we can, ethics says we might not uh, we, we might not necessarily need to go down that route. Like, yes. uh, should we bring back the the woolly mammoth or or, or maybe the thylacine or something along these lines? Um, and and it's it's really there. Um, but you touch on the the idea of uh, sort of bioinnovation and, and, and the aspect around that, the commercialisation side of things. Um, quite a few scientists uh, sort of shy away from from commercialisation, um, but I think it's quite an important thing to to highlight uh, both both to uh, to students who are coming into this field because not everybody's going to go into the, the academic realm. And, and in fact, the actual figures associated with how many PhD students get a, a permanent uh, academic role is, is actually ri- ridiculously low. It's, it's around sort of 3% or so. Um, so a lot of these highly qualified students uh, are, are moving into other fields. And, and the commercial field is, is one of these key aspects. Um, and we we work quite quite tightly with with various commercial companies. In fact, we actually uh, run a company ourselves. Um, and it's this balance between science and commercialization, uh, which I think actually advances many of the fields. Um, and it, it brings money in, and it also creates other opportunities for students to learn um, and and to to advance science in in, in many different ways. Yeah, thank you, Michael. That's fantastic. It's kind of got me thinking about, I think, it's kind of one of your other hats, really, is the kind of founding the, the Coral Spawning Lab, I believe, because I think that's kind of where you're basically advancing. You kind of talked about this earlier, I guess, with the kind of um, culturally kind of isolating those um, bacteria and kind of growing them and increasing the number that can actually be utilised in, in that way. But but also, I suppose, the kind of other aspect that you've been doing is, of course, on the coral side, isn't it, with the Coral Spawning Lab? I thought that sounded really cool. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, all, all we, we so I'm, I'm I'm obviously a scientist, and that, that's where my passion is, and 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 my passion is to uh, to answer the unknowns. Usually, if someone comes to me and says, "Oh, uh, what what's this?" or um, "How do we do this?" I, I first obviously go in and see if it's been done before, and if it hasn't, then I get excited and, and start delving into it. Um, and one of the things that we, we so our, our, our story with the, the coral spawning lab started during my PhD a long, a long time ago, two thousand. Uh, between 2007 and 2011 um, and we were I was working tightly with uh, some aquariums uh, particularly down in London the Horniman Museum 
um, and a colleague of mine, Jamie Craggs, uh, and we were looking at diseases in aquariums. So it was a really easy way. But we were we, we were we were using a lot of corals, and we were killing a lot of corals intentionally and unintentionally in many instances. Um, and we we collectively thought, right, okay, how can we well how can we stop this? We don't want to be killing things we want to be protecting them and, and saving them um we we use that for for science to advance the disease research but then we we focused on the or what makes a healthy coral tick um and then when we were looking at what makes a healthy coral tick we were like well one of the key aspects of that is to to breed from them that's what zoos and aquariums do uh, and sometimes very 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 effectively uh and having this breeding program would be very useful and very important um we could change the world uh, just in the aquarium aspects by meaning that there'd be no no more collections needed for aquariums around the world we could be self-sufficient we could be sustainable uh we could eventually possibly even start repopulating reefs if uh, if it was all done uh, properly so if it was all done in a nice uh, sensible sterile way specific countries working with specific countries so on and so forth don't don't need to get into that but the, the sort of concepts uh were, were around that that healthy organism so spawning corals was made a lot of sense so we tweaked and changed and we we did a lot of uh, various different projects to 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 get that understanding and we cracked it quite early on and we we, we were the first people to to do uh, ex situ spawning so not only were we uh, spawning corals uh, away from the reef but we were doing it in in london <laughs> and in Derby, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere uh, nowhere near any of these tropical reefs and it was all down well i say all down to it was a lot of husbandry associated with it but it was down to the environmental parameters the, the sun the moon uh the, the water temperature uh feeding the corals all these different elements which needed to be brought into play uh to to allow our corals to spawn um, and, a, and a lot of knowledge obviously and then once we started pushing out these papers uh, with, with the science on the how, many people wanted to say, well, can you help us? Can, can we do this? Yeah, 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 sure. And as scientists, we were like, yep, yeah, sure. And we, we helped, we helped, and we helped. And then it turned into a full-time job, helping this, helping that, helping that person. Um, so we suddenly thought, right, okay, well, maybe we should, should commercialise it. Um, and we worked with a... a um, an engineer and a designer of aquariums uh, to, to build these systems which uh, the Coral Spawning Lab uh, now offer um, and they're sold all around the world we've sold 34 um, which have been shipped out more and more are being developed all the time uh, these are in places like Saudi Arabia in Kaus the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Moat Marine Lab in Florida uh, in Oldenburg in Germany um, in Lisbon uh, in the ocean area so different people are, are using it for different things. Uh, you've got aquariums using it for, for science and outreach and, and to, to maintain their own stocks. You've got scientists who are increasing the amount of spawning uh, periods you can have because now you can spawn corals uh, all year round, if you so wish, instead of waiting for that one natural spawning system. And so from a science side of things, uh, you can uh, manipulate it to, so that you have these these regular spawning events and they're timed as well. You can change them during the day as well instead of waiting at night. Normally they'll spawn uh, a few hours after full moon um, so we can make it a bit more convenient for the, for the yes. people working on that. Um, and so you sat there with your cup of tea instead of your beer now um, <laughs> uh, uh, watching these corals spawn. Um, and uh, that, that means that these scientists have the, these extra products, let's say, these, these different larvae, or uh, and you can do different mixes and things. You can do uh, sort of interbreeding. Um, and it means that their, their time is more efficient. Um, so they're not waiting for a year. If, if something didn't work and they had to wait another year, that's very inefficient. Um, now we can advance the field so much more uh, by giving people the the opportunity to to work with uh, this thing which was only once a year and now it's available almost on demand basically yeah yeah that, that, that's crazy to be honest i mean i guess because people listening in will, will probably find it pre- pretty obvious from what you're saying but obviously it's absolutely no easy feat at all is it actually culturing these organisms i mean i've got some limited kind of um culturing experience myself not with corals but with other kind of lab organisms and actually even the kind of day-to-day run-of-the-mill lab, lab organisms can be fairly complicated to keep kind of alive and healthy and i just think yeah removing those kind of barriers because it is quite clearly a, a, a big barrier to, to to research isn't it actually getting hold of of the approach appropriate study organism at the appropriate time as you're saying and getting hold of those corals that sounds like an incredibly valuable tool actually for science in general 
Yeah, there's still issues. We still get the odd disease outbreak coming in unexplained. And, and then and because it's in, in the science and because we have this network of people now, so all around the world, we, we're starting to, to do larger scale collaborative projects, gathering all this information and really understanding what stuff which we couldn't necessarily have just done individually. And we can work as a, as a big network, as a big team uh, to, to understand why, why does the uh, ex situ uh, corals seem to spawn a few days after the wild spawn. Um, so it seems that we, we, we sort of saw it quite regularly that it was three to four days after the normal natural spawning. And we didn't understand why. And our systems were synced uh, specifically to the, the field. But it was time and time again. Um, and so now we've got those systems all around the world. We can start to, to really design a, 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 the research to, to try and un- unpick that. Um, why, why does it matter? Uh, does it matter? Or why, and if so, what can we do to alter it and change it? And, and also things like disease outbreaks still come in. There's, a, there's some theories about that and, uh, and trying to unpick and untangle that as well um, to, to see if we can cure that. And, and it might be a probiotic approach. So we might be combining our, our science again uh, with a, a commercial, commercial application to, to look into um, developing probiotics, which can be used by um, anybody and everybody from the hobbyist to the, to the, the, to the scientist um, to improve the, the health of their crops. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, I, I guess kind of in, in the kind of same kind of in the same vein as the kind of thinking about the kind of sci-fi elements. Uh, so if you'll allow me to kind of get a bit silly and kind of think towards the future. But to me, it actually does really sound like we're, we're almost on like on the cusp of like something really exciting here, because obviously, you know, being able to manipulate both the, you know, easily culture, well, I say easily, but being able to culture the corals and the different strains and then kind of having having manipulation powers of them that way, but also being able to delve into the microbiome and grow particular species and kind of combining them in that way. It, it kind of sounds like, you know, merging those two kind of areas, it kind of sounds like you've got a lot of kind of power to kind of pick and choose these various combinations that you could explore and potentially even, as you were saying kind of earlier, like repopulation. If you could work out what would, you know, what's the perfect mix, I guess, like some kind of Goldilocks zone, you could, you could, you could get there, you know, with these kind of tools. I think it's amazing if you yeah, to get a bit silly. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely in reach. And, and in fact, um, I, in the media, the, the, the term sort of super coral has been banded around. Most scientists don't necessarily like it because it sort of gives the impression that, oh, it's okay, we'll just uh, breed these, these super corals which will be uh, more thermotolerant or more yeah, disease tolerant. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but, but the actual science is that we can. Um, whether we can do it on, on large scales is, is still a big question. And scalability is, is something that we, we are looking into. And, and if our systems from the, the company go all around the world, which is the, the goal, um, then that scalability uh, gets, gets chipped away at a little bit. And if, if everybody who wants one has, has these systems or has multiple systems, um, then... then that that restoration element can can take hold but in the lab we have been able to uh, cross uh, corals from australia and singapore for example and just to give you a sort of understanding of that in australia most of the corals will spawn in sort of november september in singapore the same sort of species or the same uh, genres will spawn in march uh, april um, so we synced the spawning of those two different uh, groups of corals from two different geographical locations and we could create geographical hybrids and we could also create species hybrids. Um, so two similar acroporid species uh, spawned, spawning together. Uh, we mix them together in a sort of artificial insemination approach. Um, and lo and behold, you get this uh, hybrid coral. Uh, does that hybrid coral then offer uh, certain advantages? Does it have trade-offs? Um, so on and so forth. These are all the questions which, which scientists around the world are now uh, able to, to address and answer because uh, of the technology we've provided them. That's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think I think if you'd allow me to to use a, a daft term, I think you, you're giving me some kind of coral optimism here because obviously I think for the kind of layperson, it, it kind of sounds pretty pretty doomed almost the kind of coral ecosystems and, and obviously you know as you're saying you know this, this progress in this area doesn't mean that we no longer have to think about limiting obviously you know the damage that we're causing to corals but it does sound like we're actually making amazing progress um you know towards 
potentially safeguarding them for the future, which, which I think is amazing. I think that there is some optimism to be had there. I think I don't know. I don't know what you'd kind of yeah. think on that. I, I, I love a, I love a bit of ocean optimism, but I don't I don't want to necessarily burst your bubble and also sugarcoat it too much because <laughs> um, we're, sadly, uh, we, with climate change as it is, um, re- reefs are are in dire uh, dire dire need. Um, the Great Barrier Reef at the moment is is undergoing uh, another mass bleaching event, um, unprecedented. Uh, repeat bleaching um and no matter what we do uh, so I, I i see these things like the probiotics the coral spawning as sort of sticky plasters maybe yeah, it'll give sure. us a bit of time maybe it'll give us uh, a few years maybe it'll give us 10 years maybe it'll give us 30 years extra time who knows um maybe we'll end up with uh, various different arc sites around the the globe so in uh, the caribbean for example uh, florida aquarium who's using our systems um have built a, a sort of arc for the caribbean uh, for the corals off florida the florida reef tract for the caribbean corals um because they, they've got this disease called the stony coral tissue loss disease which is wiping out huge numbers of their 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 remaining corals and they didn't have that many remaining corals in the first place um so they got to the last ditch attempt where they were taking them out and and having this breeding stock with the possibility that if the environment gets reverted back to to some some uh sort of normality uh then they'll have the stock to to rebuild and re-establish reefs but that's a that's a mammoth task that's that's not uh, anything to be uh, uh understated really um and will cost a lot of money to to maintain we'll, we'll use a lot of uh, skills and knowledge to to keep them healthy and, and not lose those uh, populations as as all zoos and aquariums do um I, but but it is only a stop gap because always the goal for, for these conservation programs is for, for them to be reintroduced into the wild. And if we don't tackle climate change, then there won't be anything to reintroduce yeah, them course. to. Even if we build super corals, those super corals are only going to be uh, few and far between. Um, and what, what many people don't quite understand is when, when scientists say coral reefs are in danger, they don't, they don't mean corals in completeness will will disappear and go there'll be some species which are more tolerant and and uh, able to adapt and change there's, there's they're sometimes referred to as weedy corals um so the actual coral the the calcifying animal uh will probably outlive all of us humans um but reefs themselves these these massive diverse structures reefs are home to upwards of 30 percent of all marine life so just imagine that if you lose that reef you lose 30 percent of all marine life that doesn't doesn't bear thinking about um and uh that is what is in danger this this massive full-on uh regose this this 3d uh structured uh continually calcifying uh um habitat uh full of full of diversity full of thousands and thousands and thousands of different species fish urchins uh corals themselves sponges uh algae um mass it's, it's like the rainforests of the sea they, they are the rainforest of the sea and we are are boiling them uh with our uh, our, our carbon footprint and i see on on twitter and on, on various different social media platforms obviously everybody arguing between oh it's the government's responsibility or it's the individual's responsibility it, it's everybody's responsibility we all need to do our bit um and if we're not doing our bit then we're just sitting and watching the world burn yeah, I think I think yeah, I think that's a, a really really. Even if people go away today, we're just one thought. I think the kind of reiteration of how absolutely vital that is. It could could be a really key, critical takeaway. And I think when people are kind of thinking about all the kind of really fascinating kind of breakthroughs in the technology and the science that you've kind of been talking about, I think really that's strongly caveated, isn't it? With with that sense of urgency about the protection of, of corals and, and indeed the wider kind of you know, marine environment. I think that's a yeah really really good t- takeaway for people today. So, so thank you, Michael. Yeah, Ruth, you, you just need that balance, and it's it's something I've I've contemplated in my own living and things like that. Like, um, do we do we have a, 
a car? Yes, because we need to take my, my son to nursery and so on and so forth. Um, at the moment, I can't pop him on a bike all the time, but I used to bike. Um, so have to have one of those evil gas-guzzling cars. Um, can I shift to uh, electric? Yeah, but not at the moment because they're too expensive and they don't tow a horse because we've yeah, got a horse. Sure. <laughs> Do we need a horse? Probably not, but it's one of, the, one of those uh, <laughs> uh, life's, uh, life options. Um, same with things like um, heat pumps. Uh, we just... Uh, recently um had an extension on our house and we and i looked to get a heat pump put in instead of the the gas boiler it turned out to be ridiculously expensive yeah, to, yeah. to put in a, a, a heat pump it's not quite ready yet um now we're moving that way and the government's moving that way so it's this combination between individuals knowing and understanding and choosing things but then the government making those options an easier uh, choice so make those electric cars cheaper make those uh, heat pumps uh, a better option rather than putting in a, a gas not better just for the environment because that that's a given but better or, or at least equal to uh, the current options which which are given to us by by various different people um, so it's it's a tricky it's a tricky tricky thing. If it was an easy thing, everybody would be doing it. Yeah, um, sure. But you have to you have to just do your bit, like uh, order your coffee uh, with a reusable cup and uh, go for a uh, walk instead of driving. If if you if you're going to somewhere which is five, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes away or whatever, um, it's those little things which all build up. And if everybody in the world was doing all these little things then we would make a massive difference. We don't need to necessarily wait for the government to, to uh, actually make these, these big changes. But then my call to the government is make the big changes as well. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, I, th- I know that's a really nice point, actually. It's almost kind of just trying to think of like a way to kind of, yeah, kind of, it's almost like a willingness to kind of accept, isn't it? A willingness to adopt kind of um, slightly better options for the environment, even if that feels to the individual like it's a really minor thing, as you're saying, you know, multiplying that, obviously, you know, you're making a big difference overall. I think it's, yeah, like a willingness to adopt it. And, and as you say, the government hopefully continuing to actually make those choices slightly easier for people too. I think it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a chicken about. and an egg thing. Like yeah. <laughs> everybody's waiting for someone to make the first move, and the government won't necessarily uh, ban uh, diesel cars until people are not buying diesel cars anymore and, and moving towards electrics and things. Um, so it's it, 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 it's very difficult from a, from a politician's point of view and from the general public's point of view um, about who's going to make what decision first there isn't there isn't one answer um and I, I see that across all these social media platforms people saying oh it has to be the government and it's like mm, well no not necessarily and then other people are saying it has to be individuals making the decision and it's like yeah no but maybe <laughs> um it's not as it's not a straight answer and as scientists we, we love a straight answer we love a, a, a sort of black or white uh, but the answer is it's, it's gray and, and muddled and, and in between um and and i find that quite exciting like i, I was talking to um, some students the other day and, and i was saying that coral reefs are actually uh, go, the science suggests that coral reefs are going to be functionally uh, extinct basically uh, impo- not not working as they should by 2030 in eight years, Gosh. coral reefs around the world will be functionally extinct. Yeah, that doesn't mean that the corals will be dead. It just means that they won't be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and, and some people say by 2050, pretty much every reef will be completely degraded and, and, and past hope. And that, that is looking very likely. And so this, when I was saying this to the students, the students were like, so, so we shouldn't be a coral biologist. And I was like, no, no, that's not what I meant. I, I don't think... Yes, we've got this sort of finite period of time. There's eight years where where we can see reefs as as the beauty they are, and you can go and find a beautiful reef to dive on and, and see the diversity, and it's fantastic and amazing. But it's it's on the horizon of of complete catastrophe and collapse, and I find that fascinating as a scientist because there's all these weird and wonderful things, these interactions happening and these, these cause and effects to study um, and then these possible solutions which we've talked about. Um, but it's also saddening um, in the same breath because you're, you're witnessing the, the death of an, an entire ecosystem and certain species and species extinction and things. Um, but we, 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 can, we can do something about it or at least we can try. 
and that's the education part of, of what I do is I, I really try and inspire um, and, uh, and teach people uh, that there is that hope there is that ocean optimism um, not to be taken lightly but to be grasped and, and, and embraced and it's the younger generation we always put it onto the younger generations but it is the younger generations who will be the, the next people to, to come up with that hopefully uh, world changing idea uh, which will, will take us into the future in a, in a yeah. nice environment yeah, thanks so much, Mark. I, I was actually thinking that a kind of really nice place to kind of head towards closing up would be exactly that, talking about kind of um, the kind of education side to, to your work and thinking about, because I was going to ask really if there's anything that you could kind of, I, I don't know, suggest for people out there, you know, could be students, but also just the kind of general public, if there's any places that they could go, you know, that you might suggest them, like could be your lab website or I know you, you know, tweet out from your handle disease matters, things like that. Just thinking of anything like that, that people could get involved with, have a look at and, and kind of stay up to date, have a think about, you know, what we've been talking about today. And, and, and obviously as well, thinking about, you know, the environment and what they can be doing, anything like that, really. I was just thinking about just giving it, giving you a bit of an open platform just to say, you know, check this out or check this out. I don't know what you think but um, might be difficult off the top of your heads but if you've got any ideas well, it's, uh, there's different different platforms for different people um, I, I still really love uh, watching a, a David Attenborough documentary it, it was what originally inspired me back way back when um, and watching things like the Green Planet and stuff like that I, I, I'm I'm a zoologist and a biologist. I'm not, I don't. I, I work mostly in the the marine biome, but I'm fascinated by rainforests and uh, and uh, and shrubland and deserts and everything. And it's just nature and uh, really uh, just gets me. And I, I just love it. Um, I walk my dogs, and, but I keep them under control to make sure that they're they're not causing any damage or anything along those lines. Um, and it's uh, it's those nature documentaries which which first inspired me. So I've, I've got a, a young son, uh, Isaac, who's uh, twenty months, um, and I'm starting to introduce him to to these sort of things. Oh, it's going out to nature and 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 appreciating it. You only there's an old adage which is where well, you only conserve what you understand or what you know. So if you don't understand that. Uh, cutting your hedge back um, in the middle of spring or, or late spring when, when birds are starting to look for nesting is, is a bad idea. You might be cutting your, your hedge back yes. any time of the year um, and you're disturbing uh, breeding birds um, and, and possibly uh, impacting the, the egg laying or even the, the juveniles. But you, if you don't know that, you, you're not, you can't be held responsible for that. Um, and it's just getting that science out there. So it's doing things like, like talking to yourself. Um, we do uh, a lot with, with various different schools. Uh, we're going to host uh, we, for Science Week and, and part of the uh, British Science Association. We're, we're hosting uh, some people who want won an award for, for writing an essay um, to come and, and stay at the university for a, for a day, learn what it's like to be a scientist. Um, we uh, obviously have undergrads and master's students. Um, we have that, those websites. We do blog posts. We do Twitter, as you said, with that, that Disease Matters. And it's just getting that information out there in, in various different media platforms. Uh, things like the film Chasing Coral. Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea, uh, but it, it did its job. It got uh, people, you know, that's available on Netflix. It got people interested and, and looking and going, oh, something's happening out there. Um, so it's just finding what 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 resonates with you. Um, but I, I've started recently uh, working with a lot of psychologists, um, and one of the most interesting things I'm finding is uh, this this thing called a value action gap. So it's a, a psychological term, and uh, th this is quite a nice ending point. But um, what it what it does is it is it highlights people's uh, connections with nature so uh, people's interest in uh, in conservation behaviors or um, anything along those lines so it could be something as, as simple as recycling or it could be uh, planting trees um, or keeping your dogs under control when you're work, walking in a, a nature park or, or what have you um, it's that link to to nature we want people to go out and enjoy it but we want them to do it in a nice sustainable way um, so leave only footprints, uh, don't leave your litter and all those sort of things. Um, and th this, this psychology behind that is, is very interesting. Um, so what, what people found with this value action gap in a, in a study which looked over the whole of the UK was that only 30% of people in the UK cared about nature, so wanted to do something. Um, and only 10% of that 
actually did something so actually got up and, and did something drove their car less rode a bike instead uh, planted the trees whatever um and so that means the value action gap is means we can target as scientists conservationists as ngos as, as the government as, as council members we could target that, that extra 20 percent and make people's behavior proactive uh for for these uh, ecological behaviors these these beneficial behaviors for, for the ecology and the environment so that hits us 30 percent, which is great the sad somber the, the sad somber part of that is that 70 percent of people still don't seem to care yeah, um, yeah and we could chip away at those um with things like this so maybe we've uh, reached out to someone who's listening now who's gone oh okay i just didn't didn't understand or i didn't know that things were this bad and then maybe we're, we're making that effort and and that's all we can really hope for so we chip 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 away um with our educational programs with our university lectures uh with our blog posts with our radio interviews with our tv appearances show people what's happening teach people what's happening teach people how we can do things differently that's an important part um, we don't want to stop people going from a to b but we want people to go from A to B in a more sustainable manner. Yeah, I think that, yeah, so it's, I think it's very good for people, anybody really, to be aware of that. Actually, because I, I must say, I wasn't aware that that was that high. That kind of percentage of people who, you know, who, who don't seem to be be too fussed about it. So I think it's important for anyone to to realise that that's that's the case. So yeah, thank you, yeah. thank you for dropping that that term value action gap. I think that's a good term for some yeah people to kind of understand, isn't it? You know, be aware that that's the case, and and just feed that into your own kind of personal efforts. I think yeah. Because yeah. nature's fascinating, and uh, and I would challenge anybody to uh, to to look out and go, oh yeah, I don't really care about nature because I'm sure they do, and I'm sure they're influenced by it, but maybe they just don't know by how much. So they they like those birds coming to their feeder, but they don't really think about it on top of that. Um, but if those birds fall silent and, and nothing comes to your your yard, you'll soon know about it. Same with the insects. Like how how many people like almonds, for example. Yeah. I imagine most people like almonds or even almond milk is obviously quite traditional now or quite quite uh, trendy. Um, without our, our dear little honeybee, uh, there will be no almonds. Honeybees uh, pollinate 100% of almond trees. Um, so it's, it's little things like that where you could draw these connections. Um, and there's thousands of these connections. And you can really start to see what happens there's another just just to sort of finish on um there's another sort of adage um if if we drop dead the, the human race drop dead um tonight um uh the vast majority of the the wildlife wouldn't even blink an eye they wouldn't even notice but if our insects drop dead overnight the whole world would collapse <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's a, that's a that's an amazing fact to finish on isn't it i mean that, that's just that just straight away shows their value doesn't it mental <laughs> yeah it's it's staggering and you can't you can't just you can't even express that you can't put it into context um <laughs> we would it, it would just be catastrophic uh, there, there's already lots of evidence of, of people uh, where, where species x uh, in, insect x has, has died out and and people are having to go around and, and pollinate specific plants and, and and trees even um with with paintbrushes and things um to maintain it obviously that's not a sustainable thing so nature does so many things for us um so so much uh, so, so so much of our economy is based on nature that to counter it or to find a, a, an artificial uh, alternative to what what nature provides um, is going to be staggering and we're already struggling with everything um, our, our prices going through the roof and, and so on and so forth this is nothing we, we've just come through covid or we're still in covid if uh, we won't get into that but um but the, the covid wave is is only a a sort of pinprick into the wave that we're going to experience with with the impacts of climate change and then more importantly the impacts of biodiversity loss and i don't think the human race and the majority of the people out there are actually ready and aware for what's happening yeah or what's coming it's funny isn't it i mean it's a shame there aren't more films you know you can do disaster films it's always some kind of big dramatic i don't know earthquake or tidal wave or something well how about a film about just the insects dying out and then everyone everyone's 
dying anyway now <laughs> i think it's just reframing it isn't it as thinking about you know the, the truly the consequences of these of these things happening just sound absolutely immense and as you say people probably don't really realize they're probably expecting oh no the world could only end for us if i don't know we get hit by an asteroid or something but actually well what about if the insects die <laughs> yeah well many many will say oh i'm scared mongering or anything along those lines um and i really don't think i am um we 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 don't know um this is the difficulty we only have one planet um and so we 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 can't say what will happen without humans or or what would be what state we would be in um if we didn't have uh, humans on the planet now would we be in a better state would we naturally be going through these cycles of uh, of climate change and species loss anyway um that that's some of the arguments which people push uh who are sort of climate change deniers and things like that and we we can use models to to explore what would happen and what wouldn't happen and and there's a lot of evidence to obviously say that, that humans are uh doing all this um but you can sometimes see where where, where some of the climate change deniers are, are coming from and, and i find that also quite interesting and fascinating to, to try and uh to try and tackle that and, yes. and deal with that. Yeah, kind of understand the motivations and, and why they kind of come to those conclusions. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I met a, just a, like a sort of final case study. Um, I went to a, uh, a vineyard, a British vineyard, um, and it was uh, run and, and owned by um, a, a particularly... Um, a particularly... Um, a clever chap um, who uh, was um, a very interesting, uh, let's say, farmer. I don't, don't know what the true term for a, a vineyard owner is, um, but he, he understood his, his grapes, he understood his vines, obviously, um, and he knew the, the local area, the, the local weather patterns, the, the geography, the geology, and so on and so forth. Um, and he understood that the climate was changing and he understood that he could grow uh, different species than he could five years ago or ten years ago um, and different diseases were around and so on and so forth. And then I, I sort of pushed him on the fact and said, oh, so uh, you're, you're, it's nice for you to, to, to sort of highlight the impacts of climate change. He was like, oh, well, yeah, but it's not, it's not human-induced climate change. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, okay. And, and it, he was one of the first people I met who was uh, was saying that climate change had nothing to do with, with humans. And he was a clever chap. He was a, a very good businessman. Um, and it just sort of knocked me back a little bit because I hadn't really thought about it and I hadn't really prepared yeah, uh, to, to have that sort of debate or, <laughs> or discussion because in my world, it's, it's a given. It's... Uh, automatically presumed that uh, everybody knows that climate change is, is driven by, by us, by, by humans. Um, but there are still many, many people out there um, who, uh, who, who disbelieve it. Um, and therefore, that's where that, that 70% comes in, because they don't think that them having three cars and, and driving all over the shop instead of using renewable energy or anything along those lines is, is, is something to worry about. Um, they just crack on, um, yeah, and that's about it, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, well, could do what we can do, right? I mean, you can you can carry on, um, do, you know, pushing the education, which you're doing a, a fantastic job of. So l- let's hope that the people like that do actually decide to 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 I guess go away and, and get inspired and, and and kind of think about nature and enjoy it and and want to protect it and want to understand it because I mean I think a lot of what you've been saying today to be honest is, is kind of all about that the kind of value of doing that of you know I think you started off actually by talking about the kind of microbiome and likening it to you know being looking at these kind of really big charismatic animals and, and going and putting them under the microscope and zooming down and having a look at the the microbiome and, and all those interactions to me it's kind of a bit of a story about hopefully people can can look at whatever it is that they think is particularly nice you know use the example of the, the birds visiting the garden and then they just start to think more and more about all those interactions and everything and and go down that kind of rabbit hole of understanding more and more about nature and, and i really hope that's the case and i really hope you know people do go away and do that and i'm sure i'm sure they must be doing that because you know you, you do deliver some fantastic and really inspirational um work which i really do thank you for for coming on the show to talk about michael I mean, it's been absolutely brilliant having you again and i must say can can we grab you again for a future appearance would that would that of be course, a possibility? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, I just sort of wanted to end on two things that my my, my parents asked me and they, they say 
so so why have you had a kid in the, in this current world um and what's the point in what you do if 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 yes. i believe that we are as, as sort of doomed as we are at the moment um and they're very two very tough questions um and it's two questions which i've thought about a lot um so we'll, we'll tackle the child one first um so i've always wanted children um and um i did um and are about whether we should be bringing a child in, into the world in today's day and age with with war plaguing uh, with with plagues plaguing uh, and with climate change um here and, and knocking out our species it doesn't look bright but what i wanted uh, isaac uh, my, my son uh, is i wanted to offer him uh, as much opportunities as i can to to do whatever he wants to do and educate him in as much as i can um, and show him the the different uh, viewpoints and the different uh, how different people think and and uh, different religions and all these different aspects these are all things which i've looked for and and found um personally um and it was uh picking and choosing um and 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 finding out all the all these bits of information um to uh to to understand what was uh, what was going on uh, at any one one point of time um and i hope that he will take this embrace it um and and move on to the the, the next uh next big thing so he might have one of the answers uh to how we tackle one of our our big problems yes. in life um and it's the same with the education side of things is is the the biggest impact i have is training and educating uh hundreds of, of students every year um and telling them and, and showing them uh, really interesting things um but also uh, hopefully inspiring those to to actually make a, a, a massive difference um and it is this next generation who are going to be doing doing this exactly this I think that's a, an absolutely fantastic message to close up on today. Professor Michael Sweet from the University of Derby, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monster Frequency. Uh, I do urge you to go ahead and check out a bit more of his research. One of the uh, really convenient places you can do that is on Twitter, actually. He tweets uh, from the handle at Disease Matters. So he chats about all the kind of things that's going on in his lab, in his research, uh, and, and everything basically that's, that's occurring to him. So, yeah, do go ahead and have a look at that. And I'll just close, I think, by wishing you a happy and productive um, Earth Day 2022. Stay tuned for more episodes of Monster Frequency that will be coming at you very, very soon indeed. But it's a goodbye for now. Bye! (laughs)